Rodney. We're going to talk about creatine today. Oh. Because <laughs> it was recently brought to my attention that you don't take creatine. I don't. I But I do. You do? I do. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's not only for getting swollen. Okay. You know tell that? me more. So uh, we've talked about nootro- nootropics before. Yes. And I- A long time ago. Pretty sure it's the only way my brain is still functioning with uh, children is nootropics because okay. I take a whole freaking battery. Yeah. But uh, creatine has a, a really positive effect on the brain uh-huh. for focus and mental clarity That's and it. energy. Yeah, because it's. But do a, you not like take like scoops full? And no, like, no, 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 no. There's no bulking or loading yeah. phase. So like the human body can only absorb yeah. like three grams at a time. Yeah. And the average creatine has a scoop for like five grams. So uh-huh. I just cut that in half. It lasts forever. It's super cheap. It's like one of the most researched substances on the planet. Yeah, like the, for sure. Like it's. And uh, you just get the good kind. I think it's like Crea Pure. It's made in Germany. Okay. It's really solid. I might have to take this. Mm-hmm. Like, and it'll and it and it will help with your recovery help from workouts my, yeah, and your yeah. and your muscle density because it help your muscles yeah. like retain a little bit of water yeah. and so your form and shape will actually get better but oh, also yeah. your brain. You you need to send me this ASAP. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the More in Common podcast. Here, we explore the fact that we have more in common than that which divides us by anchoring humanity in a compassionate conversation together. I'm Shelby Stromerson, and I've been a friend of Keith and Rodney for the last couple years now, and I am so excited to support their podcast and share it with you all today. Remember to visit moreincommonpod.com to learn, listen, read, and shop all things more in common. Again, that is moreincommonpod.com. And if you like what you hear, give them a like on your favorite podcast app and leave a review. You may hear your review read on a future episode. They have dubbed 2020 a decade possible, and this is season two, Discovery. Today's episode features a conversation with Tara Bixby. Tara is an expert on empathy as she shares with us some stories that challenge our compassion and our biases. She will talk about working in male prisons as a woman, starting Courageously You, and male and female experiences with mental health, among many other topics. I think that there are valuable lessons we can all draw from Tara's conversation, especially as we continue to face uncertainty together in a global crisis and realize we all have more in common than we originally thought. Enjoy today's episode with Tara Bixby. So before we get into this episode, I got to tell you a little bit of something that Rodney got me into about seven months ago. One of those things, like he talks about these things all the time and I hardly ever try them. But this one Super in particular, true. Audible. Audible for audiobook listening. Like I tell you, I love reading books. I don't have a lot of time. I got two kids, two jobs. I got uh, you know a relationship that I try to invest in, but I really like to read books and there's a lot of information out there that helps us learn for our for our business, learn for podcasting, learn for all of the things or just pleasure in reading. Mm-hmm. And it, it gives me that space to, to listen. So Rodney, thank you for, for putting me onto them because I'm excited to put other people onto it too. Yo, man, glad I could help. I love it. I've been doing it for years. I highly recommend it. And I know you do it for, for driving and yeah, I do it for driving in LA. And, and honestly, you know, you get to get one book for free. You can, you can send a book to a friend for free you can return any book if you don't like it. I mean, that's lovely. And, uh, you know, they got a, a trial period going on. You get a free free membership to start. So we're going to put a link on our website. Go check it out. Uh, it's an affiliate link. We do get a little bit on the back end. So you're supporting us. We, we really appreciate it. Go to our website, moreincommonpod.com. Check it out. Check it out. Audible. courageously you because I struggled with my own stuff and I speak woman fluently and I know I know what that looks like and when I was in my internship in college I worked a lot with females and I picked up a theme that we all struggle with the same thing self-doubt insecurity body shaming we feel like we're not good enough and so I think working in the prisons with males 
I was missing that other piece of me. And so I created Courageously You, targeting women. I wanted to help someone so bad and I don't care if nobody admitted they needed the help, I'm a therapist and I'm a human and I know they do need it. And so I figured if I just showed up every single day, somebody will connect with it. And if I helped one person that day, that's all that mattered to me. Well, welcome back. Today we are with Tara Bixby. Uh, Tara is a licensed counselor who works in a minimum security male prison out in Idaho. However, that is just her day job as she is on a mission to empower women to live their best life. She normalizes life struggles through stories, provides tools for personal growth, and to help shine light on mental health. You can follow Tara on Instagram at courageously.u. That's courageously.u. Tara, welcome to the show. What up? Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks yeah, for we're excited thanks for connecting with you. Um, super excited to get into the the mission that you're on in life and understand more about that. But before we do, you've been in multiple prison systems that you've yeah. worked in as a counselor. <laughs> yeah, you've worked in maximum security. Now you're working in minimum. Like, what's that been like for you? Very curious, especially as a female counselor. Have they all been male? Yes, I've never worked in a female prison. It's uh, it's not reality, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> wait, wait, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? Yeah. Because you see and hear things that you would never, even in your wildest dreams, imagine. And so when you go in there, it's like kind of going into a whole other world, and the outside world is not there in the moment. Can you give us an example or? Um, yeah, just the things that you see, the, you deal, especially I used to work in the acute mental health unit. So I would see things oh, wow. where they just, they act eccentric or they would engage in behaviors that like, I couldn't even make that story up if I tried or um, just fights. And it's like its own little culture, its own little system. And so they have everything's basically under control and they they go to rec at a certain time they go to child at a certain time and everything it has a rhythm very regimented yeah what what uh you said acute mental health yeah i know what acute means like in a medical sense like a sudden like a, like like a medical it, emergency yeah, yeah. Like a, but how does that what does that mean for mental health and like what so, is that a, that word the word i look at it is it's almost like you base their levels on how how badly the mental health is impairing their day-to-day -day functioning. And so you're looking for like their level of acuity. And so the individuals I worked with were the ones that were deemed dangerously mentally ill and were civilly committed by the state of Idaho to be housed in the acute unit because they couldn't be in a mental health treatment center or facility. And so they're the ones that you basically have to confine them in a restrictive area so that they don't harm other people. And we're just trying to get them stable on meds. So they're not necessarily in prison for committing a crime. They just can't be. They're they're too. Their their level of acuity is too high. They're they're too dangerous on a day to day basis to be unrestrained. So they're in a prison, but they're not there for a criminal reason. Some of them, yeah. Some of them are just people who are from the community, and their mental health is so severe that they need to be housed there. And then others, because there's two different kinds. The other type is they have committed a crime, but they're not competent to stand trial and assist in their own defense, essentially. And so while we try to stabilize them, get them on their meds, teach them the court process. And then if they can get stable, the, what, the, what process, turn, the court process, because they have to be when they go to court, they have to be able to work with their attorney. Um, so oh, what's yeah, that but... been like for you? I mean, you have. I, it, you know, talking to you before the show, like you didn't set out to work in the prison, obviously. Um, <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't not a life that goal. That wasn't on the dream list. Um, not at all. I mean, what's it? What's this been like? What, especially 
in the acute mental health um area right like that's that's got to be pretty intense yeah yeah i i did not plan this i actually started out as a cosmetologist so it was like farthest thing from it but it was life-changing for me to be honest because i walked in and i saw a lot of individuals who had they had the mental health treatment in the community and could have had access to medications maybe they wouldn't ended up in prison so that that opened up a world to me of what the community lacks in mental health and then the other piece was just seeing it was almost empathy like your heart went out to some of those individuals because they weren't in their right mind and you didn't want to punish them for their behaviors because because of that essentially because they weren't in their right mind i feel like wait so cosmetology prison acute mental like how did that even connect i i started out as a cosmetologist and i it wasn't for me and so i moved to california and my friend was a 911 dispatcher and she's like you should apply and so i was like okay and i jumped in and i applied and i was doing 911 dispatching in california and i realized there was more that i wanted to do than be the, the calm voice on the other end of the line I felt like I actually wanted to like hear the end story and work with them. And that's when I went back to school, got my psychology degree and then went and got my master's. Wow. Now you said what the community lacks as it relates to mental. Like, can you talk a little bit more? Like what would you, what do you think it needs to improve in that area? So people don't just go to prison and, come see you and get meds. I think that the prison system is the mental health treatment facility. That's where most of the mental health individuals end up because the community lacks the resources, the funding. If somebody is in crisis and needs to be housed somewhere, that's just not available. We, we just lack it, the money, the funding, and everything that comes with it. And then access to therapy it's expensive and if they can't afford it they're not getting the treatment and if they can't afford the meds there's only so many facilities or treatment centers that will do it for free because you you can't make a living if everything's for free and so a lot of these guys become homeless and they're living on the streets and they're turning to drugs to cope with their symptoms and then they land in prison what is um which is that's what we had state run mental institutions in the was it 60s 70s when did that when did that end do you either you remember or no no i don't know i want to say it was like 70s late 70s where it shut down but i don't know i'll look it up throw it in the in the notes (laughs) what um what what is the do you know the percentage of inmates that have mental illness issues or I don't, mental health issues i don't know off the top of my head i would say that there's a large majority that access medication but i can't say specifically how many of them are mental health i mean we have a small population that's acute mental health and then they kind of fall on a spectrum there's a small population of that but a lot of it is just kind of like baseline anxiety depression when someone comes to the prison and asks, like you said, not everybody commits a crime before they are there. Like, does that go on their record? Um, what is what's the impact to the individual who ends up there without having committed a crime? And like, what's the how does that happen? Um, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever thought of that one. Typically, what will happen is they'll end up going to like the state hospital because we have two state hospitals in Idaho. And so they'll end up going to the state hospital and they may assault somebody. And because of that, they're just like, they can't be out of restraints because they're dangerous. But I don't necessarily think, unless they pick up charges, I don't think it goes on a criminal record. That is a question that I'm not 100% sure of. Are they eligible or able to get out? Yeah. At some point. Once they're stable, because there's a psychologist in the prison, he will assess them. He does assessments on them. And once we feel they're stable on meds and they're safe to return to the community, they have to go through the court process, but they can return to the community. 
Hmm. So that's why you help them with the court stuff. Yeah, that's what I I did that when I was a psych tech. That was before I became a counselor. So I did that through my whole master's program. How long have you been in the prison system (laughs) as a counselor? (laughs) As a a counselor, I've been there for 13 months. Oh, 13 months? Yeah, but before that, I was at at max for two and a half years. Oh, yeah. How was, I mean, that that has to be a little bit different, huh? Yeah, it makes you not fearful anymore. I mean, when you're growing up, you're like afraid of all the bad guys that could potentially harm you. And it's like you recognize they're sitting at your desk talking to you every day now. So is that because like, why is that? Is it because you you get to know them and you realize that they're not what they seem to be or like, why are you less? I think growing up, obviously, if like you look at the media and movies, everything is like bad guys people are mean vicious and so you become almost terrified of what could go wrong what could happen to you but where i'm at is i have conversations with guys who commit murder who have done horrific things and as a therapist you get to know them and you talk with them and you process and you you realize it's not they didn't just wake up one day and said i want to hurt somebody it goes farther back. It goes to their childhood. It goes to the trauma they experienced and just these little different paths that they took along the way that got them to where they're at. So you see them through a different lens. How was that? You know, we're spending a lot of time here, but it's fascinating to me. Okay. How was that trend? Like when you started in that, obviously you have these initial biases, especially when you sit down with your first inmate who committed murder like how how was that transition for you because i think this speaks volumes to the capacity we all have for empathy so often and compassion and compassion that's the word i was thinking of yeah describing that because so often we have that that reaction or you hear oh no way i would talk to someone no way we can forgive they committed murder yet you're i mean that's hard to do like what was that like for you and how did you come to a place of compassion to be honest i don't think i ever struggled with that i think i just went into it i just had to tell myself i'm not working with them for their crime i'm working on them for like the here and now they're what they're struggling with now because a lot of the times i wouldn't even want to know what they did because i felt once i knew it it kind of made me not show up 100 percent and so I wouldn't do my research into their crime. So I just, just I honestly later just, as you found out. Yeah. I just try not to work with who they were then. I try to work with who they are now. Mm. That's a it's such a powerful statement. Is that something you learned in your schooling or is that just you as a person? I honestly don't know. I think <laughs> I try really hard to look at people based on their inner child. Like, I don't think people just wake up and they're evil. I think things happen to us along our path and, and we cope the best way we know how, and we try to make sense of it the best way we know how. And some of us just get lost, especially if substances get thrown into the mix. So I don't know. I've never, I still struggle. I should backtrack. I still struggle with certain offenders that commit certain crimes. I have a hard time sometimes not wanting to say what I really feel, but I know that it's not my job to punish them. They're sentenced to punishment enough, and it's my job to try to help them now to change the behavior that got them there. So you have all of this natural instinct, yet your first, like as it relates to people, you have some things that you do that sound like it's not necessarily from training or degree, yet you went into cosmetology first. Like, where does all of that come from? You grew up in Idaho. Um, you said 911 sent you to uh, get, your, get your degree in psychology, but was that it? Like, is there more there that ultimately led you to do that? I honestly don't know. I feel like I've always been a very sensitive child, and I was hyper-emotional, and I just felt things deeply. I never identified as an empath, but I do pick up on other people's energy. And I just, I always was the kid, like if they're in school, if somebody was left out or like the outcast and nobody talked to them, I always wanted to befriend that person because I physically felt in my heart 
I felt bad for them. I, I don't want anybody to feel lonely. And so I think I carried that through my adulthood. And then cosmetology school was just a random, I don't know what to do. My mom did it. So cool. I'll try it out too. And then I realized that was kind of like the start of my counseling, to be honest, because I had clients confiding in me things that they had never told anybody before. And I felt like, wow, these people are going through some serious stuff. I had a client once tell me she was raped and she had never told anybody that. And I didn't know what to do with that because I was 21 and I, I didn't have any education in that background. And so just little baby steps have kind of carried me through. And I don't know. It's funny you I say just, that. I was talking to my barber this week when he's cutting my hair and he's like, yeah, it's kind of like I'm a psychologist, like the stuff that people tell him. And you hear, I've heard that from real estate agents too. Like, they're like relationship counselors. Well, getting your hair done is a form of self-care. And if you think about it for females, well, for most females, we have a lot of nerve endings in our, on our head. So if somebody's in playing with your hair, you're relaxed. You're in a relaxed mm-hmm. state. And a lot oh, of the times... It's the best thing in the world, getting my hair yeah. washed and cut. Yeah. And a lot of the times you're not even looking at the person. So it's almost like you're processing out loud while you're relaxed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So. Mm. Hairstylists are unofficial counselors, I, I, I think. Unofficial. We should honest. just we should the, just start training up the uh, the, 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 the hair barbers and the in the in the <laughs> salons of the world with the psychology uh, yeah, and the world will right. be healthier. We have better. That might be a more <clears throat> cost effective mental health system, right? <clears throat> yeah, you got. Uh, we'll start with we'll start with Floyd's and uh, <clears throat> supercuts. Yeah, give him give him some some you know, referrals to some psychiatrists who can prescribe meds. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting business model. It could be a good way to introduce mental health care into the... I think we've just... I think we just... just, We just solved the nation's mental health crisis. We just solved the U.S. mental health crisis (laughs) and figured out how to make money doing it. Well, a lot of... I can't speak for men, but a lot of women want... They go there because they want to feel beautiful. They want to feel better about themselves. And so you could work it in that you're helping build their self-esteem in the work meantime. I mean, there I mean, is nothing better than a, a shampoo. Like for me, it used to just be like, I have to get a haircut because my hair yeah. looks like horrible. Yeah. But now I like, yeah, yeah, like I love getting a fresh cut. And yeah. for most dudes, like getting a fresh cut, I feel good, look good, play good, show up yeah. well. Like, and then like sitting in the barbershop is at least for me, like it's hilarious like comedy show but it's also like there is this it's it's a space for men to speak about things that they typically wouldn't speak about and like it's not necessarily the deepest always depends on the day and who's in there but it is a space that's apart from all of the other stuff that's happening that we talk about things and i think because of that kind of yeah yeah definitely connection so what was your expectation i mean that's a that's an interesting transition going into some of the conversations you've had to have in maximum security what was that transition like for you mentally like you were assigned up i'm gonna go work in a prison i got a job but you were sheltered kid like how how did how did you navigate that expectation i don't think i had any i just I like fly by the seat of my pants for some reason. And I, I just let my heart take me where it's going because I never, I moved to California on impulse. I started dispatching, didn't think anything of it. I just, I didn't even, when I would, when I was in undergrad, I never thought I'm going to be a counselor. I've never had expectations for my future. I just kind of pieces fall and I chase it. And even now as a counselor, I'm licensed. I thought once I'd be licensed, I'd be done. And now I'm chasing courageously you because I have this overwhelming burn in my heart. Like I'm meant to do more. I always quote Steve Jobs, the people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So mm-hmm. I love that quote. I, I really never had expectations. I just roll with it. Have you, so you said you never worked in female prisons. Mm-mm. just male no. and then courageously you you're focused specifically on mental health for women yeah why why never women's prisons um honestly because there's never any opening for the female facilities but i started courageously you because i struggled with my own stuff and i speak woman fluently and i know 
I know what that looks like. And when I was in my internship in college, I worked a lot with females and I picked up a theme that we all struggle with the same thing, self-doubt, insecurity, body shaming. We feel like we're not good enough. And so I think working in the prisons with males, I was missing that other piece of me. And so I created Courageously You targeting women. Kind of where that came from. Did you say you speak woman fluently? Yeah. What does that I mean? Feel, I just, I know women's struggles. I know what women think. I know how they feel. I know how we get lost in our minds and our heads and our thoughts run away from us. We're constantly comparing ourselves to the highlight reel of social media. We think, oh, their life looks better than ours. Where when it comes to males, I only know what my husband basically tells me. And from, <laughs> and from what I gather, he's never comparing himself. He's just like, whatever. Like, I just think women are way too hard on our, ourselves. And I know when I was in grad school, I really struggled. And I felt like I was struggling alone in silence. And I think a lot of people are afraid to show up and be vulnerable because they don't want to be judged or shamed. But I don't know. I just feel like I connect a lot better with women because I know what that looks like. Interesting. Where do you think the judgment and shame comes from? Do you think it's a social pressure? Do you think, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think at some point in our lives, somebody said something to us and we formed a memory from that. And that's where it grew from it, manifested from it. It could have been when you were a little kid and you had to give a speech in your class and somebody laughed at you. You remembered that. So now you're terrified to speak in the future because it's like your amygdala, your brain, the neuroscience, it remembers that memory, even if you don't consciously remember it. Or if your parent told you, shame on you, you shouldn't have done that. You've just internalized, I'm a bad person. I shouldn't have done that. And it's grown with you. So I just think little things have happened to us through our past and we've, it's just stuck with it. And a lot of the times we're not even consciously aware of it. Do you think um, that it's different for men because we generally get more encouragement in a maybe different way or a social way? Wait, before you answer that, Keith, do you think it's actually different for men? I, I don't. Um, and I think that's kind of one of those things that I, I always like to seek to understand, um, because we do process information differently, right? Men and women, but, um, you know, that moment at a childhood that sticks with us, like, how do you, how do you think we process it differently? I guess is probably a better question. I guess like reflecting on it maybe we all process it the same we externalize it differently it presents itself differently like i think mm. men are told don't show emotion don't cry you need to be strong you need to be tough and women are coddled when we cry we're told it's okay like and so women learn it's okay to to speak your shame or your fears or whatever into the world and guys are like if a dude cries, people are looking at him like, what the heck? Are you weak? When that's not reality, we all cry. So you think it's like it's, it's like a double edged sword in both cases. Cause yeah. Young girls are allowed to cry and have emotion. But then young women and women are then said to be weaker, air quotes, because they have emotions. Yeah. Whereas men are told not to have them and then they can't fully exist in a room often when they can't know their own emotions or what's going on. And, it, yeah. and it's such an interesting, when you talk about the language spoken, it's like there's a shame to express um, in women because of the weakness. And it's like, oh, I don't want to, I mean, I talk to my wife about this all the time. I don't want to be perceived as um, this because I won't get as far in this. Whereas men, yeah. it's like you express it, you're weak, but... It it just it manifests. The well, language really it, the, is different. It's just different. The we, where yeah. the weakness yeah. is seen is different, right? Like yeah. Me taking paternity time is perceived as weak, right, by many men that I work yeah. with. Versus, like, if a woman expresses a feeling about 
a thing and a sales deal. It's like we have no we have no room for feelings here. This is a sales <laughs> deal. We need numbers right. and facts. It's like yeah, it's like the running you can't joke be a sales that, leader because you feel yeah yeah the running joke That's that if a woman was president we'd be at war once a month. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm a yeah, mate. We're like, the more aggressive ones, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh... Well, which is an interesting, which is a very like I've never actually thought. I have heard that comment. I don't know if I thought about it, but like, how many presidents do we have that didn't start a war or didn't have yeah. a war on their watch? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or at in, least fact, in fact, in fact, it it is it is very closely correlated with a successful presidency. It is. Yeah. Um, or air quote that's air quote successful so what is it them because i think it's great and i think you know what you're doing provides a space because i mean it's like the barbershop like we we talked about right it is a um for a lot of men um i don't i don't have this experience but it's a it's i mean heck lebron has a show on hbo called the shop right it's especially in black communities i was gonna say like i told my barber this week if i feel like if every american every colored creed went to black barbershops yeah the country would be better Mm. the country would be better off there's i mean there's a lot of dialogue that happens you know from from everybody um so what is it though that uh you're trying to do with courageously you like what is what is it you do and and how does it function and operate and um i'm just curious to to understand your current current uh um execution to help women manage all these things i'm still trying to narrow down my niche on that because it's really large right now because i think i could do it all but at the end of the Mm -hmm. day i just want women to not struggle alone in silence I want them to know that you're not alone in your struggle. The reason you feel alone is because nobody talks about it. And so that's kind of where like, I like to share stories to normalize struggle is so that nobody feels alone. Um, I think we are basically in self-imposed restraints because we allow our thoughts to take control of us. We tell ourselves we can't do something. We have irrational beliefs. Our self-talk is toxic. Um, anxiety is on the rampant right now. and so I try to educate women on be mindful of your thoughts, be mindful of your fears. What are you telling yourself? Be kind to yourself because a lot of it comes down to the circuitry in your brain. The more you say something, the stronger that wiring gets, it's going to become your truth. So I'm kind of a hot mix of a different bunch of different areas and I'm still trying to figure it out. But at the end of the day, I just want women to stop being a roadblock in their own life. I want them to live their best life because I'm, very passionate about our life is short. I had two people pass away last summer and it hit me on my bum, on my bum basically that I could die tomorrow. And I want to know that when that time comes, I live every single moment to my best. And so I want to help women who hide out at home for whatever reason that is and help them get out of their house. Go live your life. What's the, as you do this like are you so i've seen we connected to you to you through instagram like the posts and um just the the posts themselves like the photos and whatnot the words like they're they're eye-catching because of like what they mean and what you're saying and then what you write about them is just very insightful um like how else are you interacting like are you interacting outside of instagram or like what are your what are the modes you're working with women now I have a private Facebook group that is a safe space for people to kind of share their story and other women can connect with them there and say, Hey, I've been there too. This is what I did. So I have that through the Facebook group. And then I recently started a YouTube channel, which <clears throat> I'm learning that on the fly. Cause that's a, I am not technology savvy, <clears throat> but I'm trying to show up more on videos just to provide educational and psychoeducation. When did you start courageously? You? I started this last November. Oh, and this wow. Is kind of, really? Yeah. This is kind of why I'm so passionate is I was that girl. The girl I'm trying to help was me. And I know what it feels like. And so I originally started, it was called Courage with a Splash of Coffee. And I created it and I started <laughs> it. 
And then I got inside my head and I was like, this is stupid. Nobody's going to like it. What I like am I doing? Name. And I deleted it. I just walked away and I left it. And then two or three weeks went by and I still felt that burning in my heart. And I read Brene Brown's The Gifts of Imperfection. And I was like, I'm doing it. I don't care. Brene Brown just gave me permission to be courageous and vulnerable. And I haven't looked back. What was the, so when you restarted it, like, what was the feeling like when you launched it? Like, did you have a, did you feel relief or good or scared, terrified? Like, how did you feel when you went back the second time? I almost felt like borderline manic because I was so excited. Like, ideas kept flooding to me. Like, I just, I wanted to help someone so bad. And I mm-hmm. don't care if nobody admitted they needed the help. I'm a therapist and I'm a human and I know they do need it. And so I figured if I just showed up every single day, somebody will connect with it. And if I helped one person that day, that's all that mattered to me. So, well, so did, what's I, the biggest... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, keep going. It's okay. I was going to say, I, did, I probably presented it as a little manic because I was just so excited about it. Yeah. Keith probably gets that for me like once a week when I'm like, <laughs> yo, bro, I got like 15 ideas of which way we need to go. We need to do this, this, and this. And he's just like... Slow down chill out bro. yeah my husband's what? like pick one thing and stick with it <laughs> i've said told rodney that about 20 times and my wife tells me that all yeah. the time yeah what what's so to that point though people not may not admit it and i'm just going to show up like what's the what's what have some of the challenges been in trying to get people to talk like you have a private group is it hard to get people to engage or to join it or to even come to a place where they want to share I mean mean, yeah Yeah, I I find that there's either the woman that will purge everything or they won't say anything and so trying to find that middle balance and I think a lot of it comes down to if they put it out to the universe that's being vulnerable and if nobody responds to it you start to get in your head and think oh do they think that's stupid am I crazy and I just think it all goes back to our narrative. We get inside our heads and we regret doing what we did. And then the shame may creep in if you have a history of shaming yourself. But no, it's, it's challenging to get people to talk. And I try to show up and be vulnerable and say, hey, I've been there. This is what it looks like for me. Like give and an example for people to follow. Yeah. And then you, you'll get like a snowball momentum going. How do you, how? Go ahead, Reddy. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that men and women are getting like a like a different version of the same message? Like, you just mentioned like the vulnerable thing. Like, for men, like, it's just not like, at least for me, I'll, I'll speak for me, but it, the message is like any sign of weakness, especially, you know, talking about a personal experience or an emotion or a feeling, like, that's just super vulnerable and you're weak, you're going to be attacked. Um, and I, th- I think women have a version of that for vulnerability. It's probably not the exact same, but what's, is there anything to that? I think as a society, we're taught, don't be vulnerable. Don't air your dirty laundry. Don't, mm. don't let people see that side of you. And I think the way I truly believe I'm a, I love Brene Brown. I think she is paving mm. the way. And so I think she's, she's giving amazing. people permission to show up and be seen and, Stop putting up your highlight reel and stop pretending that life is great when you're struggling. And I think for people to to feel okay with being vulnerable, they have to feel secure in their strength. So for me, in the past, I was I wasn't courageous by any means until I was able to identify what have I done in my life that shows that I am strong enough to be vulnerable if somebody has something toxic to say to me. So it's do identifying. You, do you think that means that everybody like? Do you think that means everybody should share their vulnerability on social media or just to certain people? Or like, what does that mean in your from your stance? I think it's a time and a place, and if if it fits the situation, and you're, it's kind of like counseling. We're always told don't self disclose unless it benefits your client. So I don't I don't like seeing people post rants. I call them rants. Like, don't rant on social media. But if you see your buddy that's like, this happened, I'm struggling, you can reach out and be like, I know what, I don't know what that feels like, but I've experienced something, this is what I went through. 
just to normalize like this is normal what you're feeling is normal it's it definitely um, don't rodney, want tangents. um yeah. but so rodney your question though like this message uh, about you know between men and women and there is a a sentiment out there um you know it's like well you know why are we separating but i you know there is an importance to and i'm curious uh, tara to get your your take on this like even though we are experiencing very similar things as men and women i think we do experience it very differently and you talk about speaking fluent um female right it's it is a different language like yeah do you have a take on that like why it's so important to even even if it's isolating it's not it's not separating where mm -hmm. men can talk to men and women can talk to women and, and feel comfortable in in that space like do you have a do you have thoughts on that as to why that's important i think the reason depression and anxiety is an epidemic right now is because people aren't talking about stuff we're just internalizing and especially in men i can i can honestly say i don't know a ton about men because the mm -hmm. prison population is a lot different than the community population sure but what i've learned from watching the men in my life is that they don't want to talk about it it's almost as if they're afraid of the feeling that might come up and so if you are having a conversation with another man and you're overcome with this overwhelming emotion, you might cry. And then what's your buddy going to think of you as you start crying? And then that's when that's you get in your head. Yeah, like, yeah. I, just, <laughs> I think it's ridiculous that guys can't cry. My dad's a crier. He cries in movies. And I think that's why I'm so emotional. Is both my parents are very emotional people. And for some guys, it's okay to, to show up and be emotional. But some other guys, they're just like, nope. They just will not cry. Like, did they, but what was the example they had? Like if the example they had was not to cry or. Right. Probably. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen the, the photo video of the Atlanta Braves baseball players. Um, Acuna Jr. And I don't know who the other guy is. I don't, but this I video know even if you said his is, name. Yeah. Is um, Acuna Jr. Who's like a rising star in, in baseball is sobbing into his teammate's chest while his teammate massages his head because he had found out in the middle of the game that his mom just passed away. Oh my God. Oh, wow. And they caught this, this interaction on, on TV that is just him, just, just helping him, like just letting him and and they're they're uh, you know uh, Latin American baseball players, right? The the male emotion is very different in the Latin America than it is yeah. in North America, right? So um, it's a just an, it's a great yeah. example of 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 the health of expression and having male interactions. But yeah, go ahead, Ronnie. Well, I don't want to go too far down it, but I I yeah. just feel like the some of the bigger emotional expressing men that I've known have been athletes, which is kind of goes against the paradise. Like, yeah. well, you're an athlete. Like you should, yeah. you should be able to tough out anything if it, which many of them, many of the athletes I've known have fit that archetype. But then there's the others. There's like big hearted, big loving, big feeling like angry, like all of it. They feel it all. They let it out there. There's like a, a nerve. Like, like it's a healthy release when you're, yeah. I always think too, like for me in grad school, exercise was my therapy and I would exert myself as hard as I could. I would sprint and I'd give it all and I would cry afterwards. A lot of people talk about crying when they exercise and it is because exercise acts as a cathartic release for you. It, you push your body and it almost leaves all the stress and emotion you have right there. And so with athletes, it could be exercise induced or it could also go back to what I said about when you know your strength, you're you're a little bit braver when it comes to just showing your vulnerability. Because mm, I'm sure LeBron James doesn't uh, care so what anybody thinks. <laughs> to your point about energy release, I I read that in one child book, like with our our toddler, like they were 
talking about sleeping and napping throughout the day. And like at the end of the day, they, they may just cry. Like they may just lose it and there may be nothing wrong. They might just sure. have extra energy that they need to like cry off. And I was like, interesting. My, my daughter, this was last week um, when we were recording. Side note, she didn't want to go to bed, but she was tired and she wanted to. And my wife was putting her down for a nap and she asked my, mo- my wife to leave so she could cry. And she cried for half an hour. She asked, but she specifically was like, I'm going to cry now. So yeah. you should. She's like, I want to cry. Yeah, it was I'm a crier. I cry yeah. whenever I'm stressed. It's like I'm a balloon. I, yeah. I feel stressed or overwhelmed. I cry and I am perfect after. It's that release of energy. I just thought yeah. I'm becoming out. much more of a crier. Yeah. I definitely had the. I, I remember seeing my dad cry in front of me once and he actually and he apologized. So that was the. Uh-huh. That was the model for me. It was like, this isn't okay. Like for me to yeah. cry in front of you. So I was like, okay, I don't cry. And like, so we, I know we just talked about, like it was, we went down this rat hole of, of <laughs> or not rat hole, rabbit hole for, for men. I'm curious to get your take. Like what is different? And I think this is just important, right? So we, you know, understand the importance of having our groups that mm-hmm. are part of those identities, especially, especially our, 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 gender identities right like having those male female groups or you know whatever group you you need to be a part of what do you think is different um in in um, in your fluent language of 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 female i honestly think it's socially acceptable for females to be emotional we're titled emotional creatures so when we cry people are like oh like that's normal we have periods we're emotional we're roller coasters so I think it's just built up in us as kids. You see, back in the day, women would always come together like tribes. Like you, you connected with your women, and we would talk and we'd share stories. And we're the nurturers, we're the emotional creatures, and that's just that's the title. So we're not shamed for crying. We're almost like I said earlier, we're we're coddled for it. We're told, oh, it's okay, everything's gonna be fine if a guy cries or a dad would look at the kid and be like stop crying like you're a man grow up i think a lot of it comes down to society because hmm. if a girlfriend calls it, me it, crying yeah oh no you I was, yeah i was just gonna say if a girlfriend called me crying i wouldn't think twice about it i would pick up the phone and we'd talk about it and go about our way or if you had a bad day we'd meet hang out but I don't know how many guys just pick up the phone and call their buddy and start crying in their ear. I'd freak you out, probably. So it probably would have. Like, it, but but it would have freaked me out so much that I would have been like, "What's going on? Like, let's talk." Like, obviously something's going down. You need to talk. But now, for me, it'd be like, "Oh, okay. Well, what's going <laughs> on?" But yeah, I think for a lot of guys, it probably would freak them out. Yeah, and I think it's. I think it's it's just a it, it's interesting to me how we collectively have these things that lead to very similar emotions, but we ultimately process and execute through them differently um, as male and female. You talk about normalizing, like you know, like uh, what you said, like normalizing in general, like for men who don't understand like why 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 would we even have this conversation or why would women be having this conversation or why is that important just, like just you're really to... doing a good job putting words to my thoughts today rodney boom <laughs> like, therapist boom. in the making it is it is like you're really in my head today it's uh it's it's usually the other way around it's usually flipped yeah, yeah. i'm like uh, uh he's like well, what he's trying to say is um, very curious though about something you said earlier, unless there's anything you wanted to add on this, Tara. Oh no, I just think I think men have you ever seen the movie His, Hers and Ours or like the Brady Bunch? That's no, how no. that's how groups should be. So like the Brady Bunch, he had his kids, she had her kids, and then they were the whole family. That's uh-huh. how groups need to be. Guys need to have their guy group, girls need to have their girl groups, but then you can coexist as a to have like your mixed group together. I mean, over time, it's kind of like you mentioned villages and tribal. Like that's how we were segmented for long, many, 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 many years, and then industrial revolution. Industrial revolution just effed everything up. (laughs) Um, But you said something about holistic approach to to meds. Like that's a new new topic for me. 
Yeah, like, can we, I mean, we, we don't me. have a ton of time left, but I'm really curious to understand what that looks like. So I recently got exposed to the holistic side of it. I listened to a podcast. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but I can find out. And she talks about okay. how what you eat is impacting your mental health because your body is basically being fed these toxins and it's constantly inflamed. And so your brain is working harder to get rid of that inflammation. And that hit me like a truck. Cause I'm just like, I never mm. thought that the reason I feel depressed, the reason I feel sluggish and checked out and have no motivation was because I, my body was fighting to heal itself. I always just thought, Oh, I'm depressed. And so mm. I'm not, I'm not competent in that area. I'm just starting learning it. But people turn to mental health medication to cope with their symptoms. And it's not working because no matter how many people flood to get meds, we're still increasing. We still have more depressed people than we have ever before. And so if meds were doing their jobs, we'd see a decrease in people accessing medications. And so instead of seeking meds, people should be okay, what is the problem? Like, why do I need meds in the first place? And try to identify, okay, what's the root of the problem? Try, what's your sleep look like? Are you getting enough REM sleep? Are you exercising? Are you moving your body? Um, Self-care, are you engaging in breathing? But instead of checking those things, people just think, I want that Band-Aid, I want that quick fix, and they don't ever identify what's going wrong because your body's trying to tell you something. And it's really interesting, too, because this whole self-care movement still has that, like, for, I think, especially with the, the older population, has more of a, uh, I, I hate this term, but I can't think of anything, like a frou-frou feeling to it. Woo? Right? Like, like a woo-woo? It's like, ooh, you know, like a hippy-dippy yeah, type hip, of yeah. thing, right? And it's like, no, nah, just meds are acceptable. Whereas, what is it, 60% of your body's serotonin is produced in your stomach or, or, or some... And you know, serotonin. One, yeah, like you've got a lot of neurotransmitters actually produced in your stomach that yeah. have this same effect. Go ahead. Yeah, there's, I, like I said, I'm not confident in this actual area. It's just a new one I'm kind of diving into. Oh, okay. Love but they're that. even saying now that it's not even genetics. It's not even necessarily the serotonin in your brain, that it comes down to the food that you're putting in your body. That's basically, it's impacting our whole entire system. And so that's why they do the holistic method is you're treating the whole body, not just the brain. Like Eastern medicine, um, Eastern medicine and some religion says like the, the gut is the second mind or the second brain. And then, Science yeah. is finally catching up. I've, I've, like, it's looking at the proving that out. The vagus nerve, like the biggest connection from the brain to the stomach, like over eighty percent of the communication is from the gut to the brain, not the brain to the gut. Yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah. Well, well, that's why obviously. belly breathing is so important because when you do that deep diaphragmic breathing, it pushes on your vagus nerve and it mm -hmm. shoots up to your brain and calms it. But people they struggle to do that because it's not like you breathe once and your symptoms go away. I always right. say it's like a muscle. You have to lift every day to build that muscle. You have to engage in breathing exercise every day to basically rewire your amygdala so it doesn't respond. That all being said, do you think there's a place for medicine? I mean, especially you do acute stuff. So like medicine to help people normalize so that yeah. they can start working on yeah. food. Yeah. I should do else. a, <laughs> I should do a disclaimer because I don't want to shame like, populations out there that are yeah. accessing meds because i do think mental mental health medication has a purpose i've seen it with some people they absolutely need it to have a life worth living because without it they they can't function so i do know that meds have a place and there's no shame in seeking medication management i do think that meds should be used as a bridge to getting stable it should be the bridge that connects you with therapy you should be doing the work while you're on medications, trying to identify instead of just slapping a bandaid on it. I like to think of it as like the snooze button on your cell phone. If you take meds, you're essentially just hitting snooze. The alarm's going to ring again, but unless you turn off your ringer, which would be like going to therapy and doing the work to turn off those symptoms. When you stop your meds, the symptoms are going to start ringing again. Hmm. 
is it is it the case that you might need the meds to even like for the therapy to even help like for you to even yeah. get through to making progress yeah absolutely because you could be and i'm going to steal this from your guys' podcast episode but i heard the one where she said if you're drowning you sometimes you need the meds to pull you up out of water so that you can get your head above water i thought that was golden and i ran with that one yeah take it thank you thank you Allie. yeah yeah there's no shame in accessing meds some people absolutely need it yeah no that's good so what's your we got about 10 minutes left so um what's your vision like where First of all, I mean, I, I'm shocked that you started in November because you've, yeah, at least from an online measurement standpoint, and we don't have access to your private Facebook group, you know, your, your following is growing. People are paying attention to some of the things you're doing in a fairly um, aggressive growth way. You seem to be interacting um, and like, like an how, community. How yeah. is it going and, and where, what's, what's the direction that you're trying to take this? I'd really like to get digital courses going. and. I want to make therapy easier to get a hold of. I had a horrific emotional nervous breakdown in grad school and I walked out of my state job. When I worked at math, I walked out of it. And it was for a million different reasons, but burnout, stress, lack of self-care. And when I did that, I lost my health insurance, which meant I lost my EAP, which meant I lost my counseling. Oh, and employee I, assistance program, if people don't know. Yeah. EAP. Yeah. Good, good call. So all of a sudden, here I was in the throes of grad school to be a counselor, and I had no access to a counselor. And That's I could have up. went and paid for one, but they're so expensive, and I just walked out of my job. And yeah. so that really awoke in me. So there's a lot of people that can't afford counseling because it's $150 a pop. Mm. So I want to do digital courses. Yeah, digital courses that allows people to get help in their home for way cheaper mm. or so. teaches hairdressers and barbers how to how to it's, we got a business I, model here tara we're, we're going places <laughs> like, i know it's the it's the scalp massage mm. emotional mm. therapy release technique like, that's um, why i'm having a hard time narrowing down the niche because i'm like i did dispatching hair we're like i just have yeah. so many i know so many <laughs> avenues <laughs> What, um, at the end of the day, I, I was going to ask the, uh, oh, counselor, do you, ha do you have your own therapist now? I, I asked, no, this, not, I wanted to ask this when we were talking about prison and like how you, yeah. you see, it's not in mm. real life. You said, and like, how do you cope with that? Like, how do you deal with that? And how do you, you just like, what do you do? I, I don't know. I must be disturbed because it doesn't save me. I, when I walk out of those gates. I leave my work at work. I don't even think about it. Um, mm. I. You also have a yeah. physical like disconnect from it, like yeah, a gate. I'm thankful. I'm very yeah. grateful to be outside of those gates when I leave. So I think that's why I'm more focused on like the gratitude of like I. Ha I'm thankful that every day I can choose what I do because those guys have no choice in what they do, and I'm grateful that I have the life I have because nothing kills me more than when I look at an offender who has a life sentence and he's like 22 and I'm like, mm. that's your, that's your only life. And like my heart aches for that person because I'm like, what happened to you that got you here because yeah. your life's gone now. And so it's, I'm just wow. so appreciative of my own life every day. Oh, now what is your method of self care? Like, what do you, what do you do to practice that you could tell um, all the people who follow you? I have two go-tos. One of them is exercise. If I do not exercise, I always joke that I'd be on the other side of the door at work because it's what keeps mm. me grounded. It really does. It's a cathartic relief for me. And so that's my one self-care. And my other self-care is, is I'm very introverted. And so my job at the end of the day is draining for me because I've had to really mm. give everything to that person. And so coming home and sitting in complete silence, laying on my bed, no noise at all, no cell phones, and just laying there. That's, do I could stay home all weekend and not talk to a single person and be fine. You're talking to two yep. introverts. We different, different, yeah. different, yeah. uh, different types of introverts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, do do you find this like being in this conversation? Do you find it draining, or will you need space afterwards? 
Oh no, because I'm this is I'm excited. This is my passion. I could talk about it all day. It's when mm. I'm having to suck other people's energy because yeah. I do feel deeply. Like when I have an offender sitting in front of me and he tells me his mom pimped him out and he was sexually abused, like my heart literally aches for that person. And so when I hear those God. stories for eight hours a day, it's it's hard for me. It drains me. Hey, could I, you define introvert for us real quick? Because like I, I hear people use like there's lots of different ways people use it. But like, what does it mean for you? For me, it just means people drain me. Like if you think of a gas tank, the more I give and the more I give and the more energy I serve that person, the less gas I have in myself. And so I'm good in groups of like three people, but to throw me in a large crowd, I'm almost like a turtle. Like I want to go into my shell and hide because it's too overstimulating. It's too overwhelming. But I just look at it as an energy thing for me personally. I, yeah. And when I say people suck the energy out of me, that sounds bad. But it's because I show up and I, I just feel deeply. Yeah. The battery analogy that I got, like somebody was like, if you're an extrovert, you wake up with an empty battery and it gets filled throughout the day when you interact yeah. with people. And if you're an introvert, you wake up with a full battery and it gets drained and you That's get to refill it. Yeah. I like that. That is a good analogy. I, I have to ask this question. Um, this is complete uh, tangent. But when you talk about that, that, that story, like when someone comes in and says, I was pimped out by my mom and I was abused, like, then there are a lot of people out there who will say, just, just power through, pick yourself up and go succeed. Mm. Go, go get a job and, you know, we shouldn't be helping you out. You just gotta, you just gotta power through it. Like, what's your take on that mindset? especially given what you've experienced and where you came from being that you grew up in a bit of a sheltered space. I think, and I'm sure this would upset some people, but I think ignorance comes to play. I think people that weren't exposed to the harshness of realities, and I was that person, they don't understand. And I wrote a huge long piece on this about the gun violence going on right now in America and how people blame the guns. But I always say it's you got to go to the person. These guys, yes, they committed a horrible crime, but look at the stability they had in their homes. A lot of these kids enter the foster care system, they're sexually abused, they're physically beat, um, they're told they're pieces of shit, they're, you know, they, it's this trauma, and this is this little kid that has no safety. The attachment issues come into play. And yeah, some kids get out and they do succeed and they do really well. But I had a kid, a guy tell me once that he turned to heroin because it was the only way he could get his mom to pay attention to him. So when he used with his mom as a 10-year-old, she showed him love. And people don't see that side of, the life, of life, essentially. So when you hear those stories, your heart aches for them. Because I had good parents. I was never exposed to that. And when a little kid thinks the only way he can get love is to use heroin, you just opened up a whole path of substances and nothing good comes from that. Uh don't know what to say after that. Yeah. Um, the tangent came from something I watched yesterday, and oh, that I'm, the, I'm, I'm yeah. just I'm. What's the I'm, bootstraps argument? It's the yeah. pull yourself up by bootstraps. Like I'm you, just you can be good too, American. And that this is the whole government politics conversation, and we're not going to get into now. But it's just one of those things where I struggle wholeheartedly that like people need help, and it's. You know, they're just, I get it. You as an individual were able to come from harsh reality, but like there are some harsh realities out there. Like that is a yeah. harsh reality. And yeah. oh, that just makes me sad. Just I was ask, have you heard of the, the book, Cup, I think it's called A Piece of Cake is what it's called by Cupcake Brown. I no. just finished reading that and her story was of like, it was a horrific story of trauma and abuse and she was in gangs and drugs and she ended up being an attorney. And so I think it kind of piggybacks on what you're saying is, yeah, people can choose paths and pick themselves up by the bootstraps, but if they don't have the support and they don't know how to cope, if you get the borderline personality and they lack coping skills, they just might not know how to. Yeah. I would also presume, and I, I wrote that down because I want to read it. Someone somewhere correct, helped her like, there's the narrative and then there's the truth. Like, yeah. yes, Bach wrote his first symphony when he was five. His dad was a composer. 
nobody talks about the fact that his dad was a composer, so he was around it. And also, his first symphony was shit, but like he was around it, so he had an example, and he could. Like if, he, had, he had the if my daughter wrote a symphony, I'd be like, oh, that's cool. I don't know what that is, right? Like, <laughs> right, you'd be like, throw that away. That, <laughs> yeah, those, have a nice day, <laughs> like, right? Dots it doesn't sound good, right? Uh, but, for, but like, you think about a 10-year-old in heroin, like, uh, like, like uh, for me, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, how does a 10-year-old not only know what heroin is, but have access to it. Like, that's how bad this is. Like, my response to somebody would be like, well, they just need to, like, you know, rose from concrete. Like, they can bootstrap it up. And it's like, well, did you know what heroin was when you were 10? Like, that's the situation. That's the direness of that situation. Is direness a word? I don't mm-hmm. know. But, like, that's how bad that situation is. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, Tara. Oh, my God. You, that's gonna you, be in my head all I mean, weekend. What, what a wonderful conversation! And now my yeah. my my head is spinning. But no, seriously, it's been great having you on the show. We we are yeah. thank you for what yeah, you're sometimes, doing. Sometimes you know I I love this because I often forget that I'm I'm uh, recording a podcast and other than this microphone that's in my face, but I very much <laughs> had that feeling today. So yeah, thank no, it was you. very fun and like uh, yeah, it was just loose and it was good. And I I, I really um I didn't get to say it in the episode, but I really really love your posts. Like yeah. I. I connect with them on a deep level and like just some of the personal work that I'm doing, like it's helpful. Yeah. Like it's encouraging. Yeah. Thank you. So with that said, Rodney. Yeah. All right. So we're here at the end and we got to ask you, we want to ask you, what would you leave our listeners with as a nugget of wisdom or goodness? I'd say get out of your head and stop being a roadblock in your life because this is the Super Bowl. It's not practice and you're only going to get one shot at it. 